the person who's been expropriated is not going to pay it back anymore. They don't have the property anymore. Why would they pay it back? They can't pay it back probably. So what's going to happen to the bank? Uh, it, it, it is expecting on its books to get 5 million Rand back over the years. Uh, is the government going to pay it? Uh, the expropriation bill doesn't make any provision for it to do so. Uh, so the, the banks are going to be directly expropriated too. Expropriation without compensation is back with a vengeance. Should South African property owners be worried? Well, joining me on the show is Gabriel Krauser of the IRR. Gabriel, good to have you back with us. The EWC bull is currently before Parliament, but before we delve into that, could you give us some background to this very contentious expropriation debate that has been raging over the last few years in South Africa? Yeah, the the show's not over, folks. Uh, I'm sorry to say. The most recent recent part of the origin story was the 2017 Nasrik Convention, um, where Nkosuzana Dlamini Zuma and Cyril Ramaphosa uh, competed to become the next leader of the ANC uh, in the sort of 11th hour of Jacob Zuma's reign. And a lot of the attention going into that was about these two individual candidates. There wasn't a lot of talk about ANC changes in policy direction. Um, but in fact, the biggest change that came out that day was the policy direction. Uh, the ANC firmly adopted a resolution to uh, achieve land reform, as they call it, through expropriation without compensation. Um, now, from that moment, two moves were made. Um, one was to achieve EWC, as it's known, through a constitutional amendment. And another was through an amendment to the law. Obviously, the law just takes a 50% vote, uh, and the law in question is called the Expropriation Bill. Or expropriation act so the change is called the expropriation bill uh, and then the constitutional thing is what you referred to as ending last year in december when uh, the eff and the anc couldn't agree on the exact wording and the eff didn't like the anc's wording that required in our opinion a three-quarters vote um but in the in the uh, in the view of the whip oh sorry of the speaker of parliament it required a two-thirds vote nevertheless uh, they didn't get the two-thirds or the three-quarters and so that thing fell on its face um, but the expropriation bill continues to move its way through. Um, there is a sort of backstory to the backstory, which very briefly, you know, th there was an expropriation bill tabled by Minister Tulas and Klesi uh, in 2015, uh, which radically eroded property rights, um, in some senses achieving the same purpose. Uh, so 2017 is not exactly where it started. Um, our colleague Anthea Jeffrey had started tracing from um, around the time that Jacob Zuma had come to power. I think it was over 28, maybe even over 30 bills or regulations that uh, severely aimed to erode property rights effectively to abridge your, your protections under Section 25 of the Constitution. It's just worth, I think, uh, looking at the Constitution, what it, what it says, what those protections are. Um, so Section 25... Uh, three says the amount of compensation and the time and manner of payment must be just and equitable, reflecting an equitable balance between the public interest and interests of those affected, having regard to all relevant circumstances. And then there's a list of those circumstances. So it does entitle the state to expropriate, for example, if building a road or a how train kind of uh, system. You know, there are instances in which the state may have to take property, but there are a list of conditions and that must be just and equitable. Um, you know, so I think it's very important when we have this discussion, we just realize that those, the constitutional provisions were not changed, but now there's this separate piece of legislation, normal legislation for want of a better term, that is seeking to kind of drive EWC via the back door, if you will. Yeah, I mean, in a certain way, I think the proponents of EWC uh, would say that this is exactly what parties like the IRR, I mean, uh, civil society, uh, organizations like the IRR recommended in the first place. Um, part of our submissions to Parliament were that you can't even begin to think about changing the Constitution until you've tried to test this thing in the courts, and that would only happen after you change the law. Now, it's always been our view 
that you can't change the law in this way because it's unconstitutional. Um, but I'm, I'm sort of just niggling with your characterization of this going through the back door. In fact, they were trying to go through the back door in the first instance by trying to change the constitution <laughs> without testing yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, the question of whether the constitution allows nil compensation. Why does that matter? It matters in a very important sense. Uh, I think one of the phrases that people will have come to be familiar with in this, in relation to this question is make explicit that which is implicit, right? The people who argued for EWC through constitutional amendment, they said, we're not actually changing the constitution uh, in the sense that the constitution allows for EWC. We're just making explicit that which is already implicit in the constitution. Uh, and our argument was no, the, the constitution clearly prevents EWC, very clearly. Um, this is important because while the law, the constitution hasn't changed, I think some, uh, some businesses, some members of South Africa society have probably been fooled uh, through this make explicit that which was implicit have been fooled into thinking that the constitution does allow for EWC and therefore that this bill can go through and become a law and then uh, Minister DeLille, uh, Patricia DeLille, uh, can sign off on EWC exercises by uh, you know, bankrupt municipal authorities grabbing uh, properties uh, and that that won't be a problem because the constitution already allows it. In other words, there has been an attempt to uh, read into the constitution to change between the lines what lies in the constitution um, and insofar as that has been successful uh, in the minds of a few captains of industry um, and maybe even some civil society organizations uh, that poses a great risk because the courts are always supposed to be completely independent uh, but they're but they're occupied by people and so there's always a worry that a court might somehow be influenced by this very wrong-headed idea that the constitution implicitly uh, allows this as you've just read out it, it says just and equitable balance uh, there's no balance uh, if you don't get paid uh, and and your stuff's taken away so it does allow for e with compensation uh, but Correct. You know, there's nothing uh, kind of implicit there um all right so let's look now at the legislation itself the ewc bill uh, could you provide us with a bit of detail on that and what are some of the potential risks as you see them? Okay. So, I mean, there are there are a few um, more technical concerns with the bill, um, but the, the, the headline basic problem is that it allows for nil compensation. Section 12.3 allows for nil compensation uh, after expropriation or as a result of expropriation. That's just uh, going to have devastating consequences both for the direct targets of EWC and for the rest of the country too. Um, I'll say that the secondary concern is that this bill, but not very much second by much, uh, it's almost just as bad, maybe is just as bad, also goes towards allowing for expropriation at below market value compensation um, in ways that I think uh, just as much abridge the, the just and equitable clause of the constitution. Um, you know, so if, I, if someone comes and takes uh, your house and it's worth a million rand and they say, well, it's not nil compensation, I'm giving you a thousand rand for your house. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's technically better uh, than EWC. Um, but it's I, all quite dissatisfying for the person who's had their property taken away. It's not good. It's not good enough. Um, so maybe I'll, I'll just walk you through 12.3. Um, it says that uh, no compensation may be just um, in the following circumstances, uh, but not limited to these circumstances or scenarios. And then it lists five circumstances or scenarios. So the first problem is the fact that the list is not closed. This means that courts can be asked to take things into consideration um, that haven't been made explicit in the law. 
Um, so it says including but not limited to these factors. Yeah. So 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 that's it's think about it like this. One of the arguments that we hear from proponents of this bill that have been leveled against our submissions to Parliament, uh, criticizing it. Um, one of the arguments has been, look, the IRR is being alarmist. They're saying that this bill is going to um, really profoundly undermine property rights, but they're not attending to the fact that it's sort of been very well ring-fenced, that the law is precise and concrete, and that the courts are going to come in and protect you uh, in so far as there's any room for interpretation. Now, on the first matter, uh, the law is not precise and concrete, or insofar as it's precise, it precisely says, you know, there are all kinds of things that we haven't even been able to think about uh, and that you might find interesting uh, if trying to justify why someone deserves null compensation. Insofar as the courts can be relied upon um, to uh, weigh against that in a just fashion, I think it's worth bearing in mind that even if you do go to a, a court that acts justly and correctly. It's very expensive. A visit to a, to, to a regular high court with senior, you know, you have to bring an advocate, an attorney. Um, this is not like a criminal case where the, the state is going to provide you with free legal counsel. Um, mm, it'll be a civil dispute, right? For a lot of people, they're going to be sitting with costs that, uh, that, that could easily exceed the value of their property. Um, and the state would have access to taxpayer taxpayer funded legal counsel that is essentially limitless. Yeah. So you you really have uh, the I think as our colleague Dr. Anthony Jeff my colleague Dr. Anthony Jeff everyone put it uh, you know the, the behemoth of the state pinned, uh, pitted against the the puny citizen, um, and procedurally uh, there are problems. There've been sort of subtle amendments and they're going back and forth. I should say that. Um, yeah, the vote on the final language will take place on 14th September. That'll be the end of the committee process, and then it'll sit on the National Assembly's floor. Um, so we, we can't, uh, I wouldn't want to get too lost in the particulars of the language, um, because that hasn't been finalized. But in some versions, uh, and in fact, you know, it, as, as I read it in the version that we're still sitting with, um, there are important rights in, in use of the property that can be removed um, before the court process has been completed um, and that your title deed can effectively be taken away before the, before the court process is, is concluded as well. So, you know, it's a little bit like we're going to take away your stuff first and then have a debate about whether that's okay, where you have to pay um, and we'll use taxpayer money and let's see who can last longer. Um, I think there are real concerns, even if the law was well written, about your odds of getting a, a standard just process outcome out of that process. But then when you see that the law is not even prepared to limit itself to particular circumstances, uh, that concern is, is even worse. That all being said, um, uh, it, the, the null compensation clause uh, seems to say that it's limited only to land insofar as it's limited to anything but again it's not limited so the, the only circle it says no compensation can be paid for land um and so that might make you think well at least there's some protection the improvements on the land are never going to be things that you can expropriate without compensation here's the problem with that thought i mean i think it's a good thought but there's a problem with it and the problem there is something called the principle of accession which is basically a technical term for once you have uh attached a piece of a property, an item of property to another item of property in such a fashion that you can't really undo it uh, without basically breaking it, um, then they become one item of property. Uh, so in factories, you know, there's some fridges that can be removed. And then if you buy the factory, you don't get the fridges, you have to pay extra. But with other factories, you know, they might be so embedded, sort of set in concrete. This is one of the cases that was uh, set precedent for this. Uh, that they are included in the property. Um, so obviously houses, warehouses, dams, irrigation systems, hotels, um, uh, factories, all the kinds of things, homes that might be expropriated, um, they 
they could, through the principle of accession, be considered in some contexts to be part of the land uh, because it's one and the same property. Uh, it's reflected in the same title deed, uh, which is, you know, the sort of guarantor of that property and it names its features. Um, and under that interpretation, um, EWC is still around for land and improvements, um, uh, which, yeah, it's hard to sort of be worse than uh, complete erosion of, of then the kind of erosion of property rights that occurs when you have EWC. Um, but it obviously is worse if, if immediately uh, improvements are also on the chopping block. Right. So Gabriel, so you've listed these uh, instances where null compensation may apply in the EWC bill, but bearing in mind the constitution hasn't been amended. If I look at the constitution, like I mentioned earlier, section 25.3, um, it says there's this just and equitable requirement, and then it has with due consideration to all relevant circumstances. So then it lists those, it says, must include, you know, uh, the current use of the property, the history of the acquisition and use of the property, the market value of the property, the extent of direct state investment and subsidy in the acquisition and beneficial capital improvement of the property, and also, finally, the purpose of the expropriation. But now the law and the constitution seem to be in conflict there. Um, and then there's this you know, uh, 25.3c, the market value of the property, surely that will be enough to throw out this EWC bill as it's currently been drafted. So I think there's two questions there. The one question is, um, is, it, is it possible to, to resist this before it becomes a law or should we just resign ourselves? And then if, if that happens, how are the courts going to decide? Are, are the courts going to sort of strike down this law and say this is just clearly mm. unconstitutional? And you, you can't challenge the constitutionality before it is actually enacted as a law. Yeah. Um, and and this, I mean, there, there may be a way around it, but uh, in, in past instances where uh, court actions have been attempted in anticipation, Glenn is the one. Uh, it, it, it's uh, the, the, the courts have shown themselves very reluctant to intervene in, a, in this kind of process until... Um, until the bill's been signed into law. Um, so, and then the other question, is, okay, so let's just first say, I don't think that um, one has to wait for this to get to court. Um, I think it is unconstitutional and that courts should find it like that. But I think we could stop it before then um, for the following reason. Last year, when the attempted 18th constitutional amendment uh, was was failed. Uh, what happened is that bill, the 18th Constitutional Amendment Bill to allow expropriation without compensation, got 204 votes in the National Assembly. There are 400 members of the National Assembly. Uh, so they, they were only 50% plus four. Mm. Uh, there are about 25, 30 ANC MPs who didn't vote for that. There were a few uh, tiny little parties that did vote for it. So it wasn't even all ANC. So there are a few members who didn't show up. Um, and I think it's worth bearing in mind that as the pressure builds up to 2024, if there are any ANC members that are considering jumping ship at the last minute, um, <laughs> they, they, they would be kind of signing a political death warrant if they uh, were to sign this bill, um, because they would then on a policy basis not be able to say that they're any different to the ANC. You know, we'd be sitting in a world where, you know, this bill gets passed, they voted for it, and then in the build-up to the election, they're like, no, we're not an ANC, we're going to start our own party, run as an independent candidate. Um, in that circumstance, the country's not doing well. Uh, foreign direct investment has fallen. Uh, domestic investors have, have offshored wealth that they can. Um, it's it's going to be tough times, and, and I think that based on our polling at the Institute of Race Relations, you know, people are really not in favor of expropriation without compensation. Um, it's not going to be a popular thing to have attached one's name to if one at the same time is trying to distance oneself from the ANC and the EFF. So all you need really in a way is to apply enough pressure that another five MPs drop off the ticket. Um, and, and I don't think that that's likely uh, in a balance of probabilities thing. You know, I think it's less than a 50% chance. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I don't think it's impossible. And I think that um, if civil society uh, keeps working at this tirelessly, um, it's a realistic target to shoot for, even if it's like a 
but two in 10 charts. Uh, so that's the first question. The second question, I'm anticipating the, the real question that you asked, which is, does the constitutional protection, just and equitable, and particularly that reference to market value, protect against this claim that you can go ahead and expropriate without compensation? The short answer is yes. Um, the, 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 the slightly longer answer is, again, in two parts. First part is, notice when you read Const the Constitution, Section 25.3, where it says you've got to strike a just and equitable balance. It says including all circumstances that are relevant, including, and then it lists those five, but not limited to those. That's also an open-ended list. And we're serious about open-ended lists. For it to be just and equitable, you have to consider what are the costs to the owner? Uh, what are you doing to their lives when you displace that, that owner, uh, whether it's their home or their business? Um, what future income are they losing out on? How much is it going to cost them just to move out and get their stuff out? Uh, where are they going to go? How much is it going to cost them to, to set up shop elsewhere? Um, those must be part of the just and equitable considerations that the constitution is saying every court must take into consideration. Uh, there's no ways that you can treat the target of EWC as inhuman or subhuman. Uh, this country's made that mistake before, right? I mean, in fact, that's why... Uh, the grand historical origin that I didn't quite get into was apartheid wicked and stupid and evil uh, forced removals and displacement of people. And before that, since 1913, uh, abrogations of property rights, uh, treating people as subhuman. Yeah. Uh, moving them around like pawns on a, on a chessboard without any agency. Yeah. It's unjust and it's unequitable. I mean, that's, uh, there's no doubt that that's what our constitution means. Um, for, for, for those people or for anyone who might be subject to, to the state today uh, undergoing the same things. So if you consider those implicit, th those factors that are not listed, but that are clearly entailed by the commitment to just and equitable, um, then there's no ways that you can get to null compensation. Um, and, and I think even if you just look at the factors that are mentioned, you won't get to null compensation either. Um, and that's because, as you say, you have to consider market value. Um, you have to consider the use of the property, whatever the use of the property is. Um, what, one of the um, things that the expropriation bill considers is, well, let's say you're just using the property to speculate. Then you should get no compensation. So you own this piece of land uh, and you bought it for 10 million. Uh, and it's you know somewhere between Joburg and Pretoria. And it's, uh, there's nothing on it but grass. But your idea is that uh, there's more and more development in that zone. And one day you'll be able to sell it for, to a property developer for, for 30 million rand. Uh, the expropriation bill says you get nothing. It says the government can take it away from you right now and you get nothing because the use of it is uh, speculation. Well, <laughs> I mean, David, I've watched your channel. I know that you've had uh, <laughs> some, you know, bankers and people who know how stocks work if you're not allowed to buy or you know any business any retailer if you're not allowed to buy at five in order to sell at seven the entire idea of a market gets blown up mm. um, speculation single... is seen as this kind of dirty word but i mean it's a fundamental drive of commercial activity people are taking a bet on the future what is the jse i mean is there is there anything that doesn't <laughs> then stand up for, you know, become a candidate for expropriation without compensation on the JSE. Um, it's, it's, it's a, that's a crazy, in other words, when the constitution says you must in a just and equitable fashion, consider the current use of the property. I see that as a protection. That a just and equitable understanding of the use of the property. Well, I'm using this property as a, as a bit of speculation, as a, as a bet on the future. That is, clearly protected by the constitution uh in 235 uh yeah 253a in my in my interpretation and any other interpretation as soon as you say that's not right the constitution when it says the use of the property has to be considered 
Well, that means if you're speculating, you're subject to EWC, you've suddenly blown up the entire financial system, um, which is, by the way, the largest sector in South Africa, uh, because the banks wouldn't be able to operate unless they had uh, uh, access to speculative markets and speculative markets counting as investors into them too. So that's one kind of sense in which I think, even if you just look at the explicit factors, you find yourself um, incapable of coming to the kind of uh, conclusion that this bill is trying to draw. Right. Well, imagine a scenario where, say, there's an abandoned derelict building that's been taken over by crime syndicate in downtown Joburg. Uh, it's falling into squalor and dilapidation. Um, and the state wants to say, well, you know, we need to actually uh, take this building over. We don't know who the original owner is. Uh, there's no way of finding out who it was just abandoned. Uh, I mean, surely there is a, a, a case there for uh, expropriation without compensation. Uh, I'm just kind of steel manning the, this argument. What do you think of what do you think of that kind of, of situation? David, I think that's exactly the right approach to take. You've got a steel man. And the best kind of realistic argument that one can see for EWC is exactly what you've described. Now, I happen to have uh, done a little bit of research into this particular thing. I grew up in the CBD of Johannesburg. Um, I, you know, sort of saw around me as buildings uh, disintegrated, um, almost like, you know, an antelope that uh, has been left in the sunshine uh, to desiccate and eventually just become a skeleton. And after that, almost nothing at all. That really is, yeah, two houses next to where I grew up, that happened. Um, and at the same time, I, cultural family, that's why I dress funny sometimes <laughs> um i spent a lot of time going to the market theater to the standard bank art gallery to the uh, parts of the johannesburg cbd in which art beauty culture uh africa museum museum africa and so on were remained the, the last chances of of keeping law and order of keeping jobs of keeping uh, a legitimate and and growing uh, kind of way to live and as a result, I had a particular interest in urban center rejuvenation in South Africa. And that led me to do some research into this. Now, one of the companies that I think is very interesting is Tough, uh, the Urban Housing uh, Forum project. They uh, have uh, financed, backup financed, uh, thousands of huge buildings in, in Joburg CBD, uh, Nelson Mandela Bay C CBD, China, et cetera, et cetera. They moved in when the big banks had been too burnt and, and too terrified by building hijackings that occurred in the late 80s and 90s uh, that resulted in defaults on bond payments that resulted in uh, them having to write off really bad debt on their books. And it's only because they had very conservative good books at the time that that didn't trigger a kind of uh, global financial housing crisis type issue that happened in America, in South Africa. Uh, nevertheless, the write-offs were, 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 were severe. Now, the background to this, the, the, the reason I'm saying this is because I've spoken to people at that particular institution who said, you know, there was a moment where we might have been beaten by the government because there were so many abandoned buildings uh, and there was such a clear value add proposition to rejuvenating them uh, by a back of the envelope estimate in Johannesburg alone, over 1 trillion rands worth of assets, hard infrastructure assets uh, lost, right? A trillion rands in value lost because of the, the breakdown in law and order there and the, and the loss of, of control of those buildings. But they, and the government might have stepped in and done EWC and, and, done, and done urban rejuvenation. But that didn't happen. The government didn't do it back in 2008. And what happened is private companies stepped in and what they did and, the, and their value add proposition basically is we will find the little old granny who immigrated to Cape Town or moved to Kalani or moved to uh, a, a small holding or some move to Israel or Australia, we will go and find all of those people so that we have all of the sectional title deed votes necessary in order to uh, get the legal body corporate system back alive in order to uh, mm, get a replace and then, the, and then change, then change you can the replace the elevator, change the plumbing, put in security systems at the bottom and make those buildings work again. And I've been into those buildings, going to a building like Ponty, uh, most buildings in Joburg CBD and now all of those CBDs that are financed by Tough, and there are several other companies that joined the business too 
you've got a fingerprint to get in or you've got to hand your ID in in order to get into the building. And then inside you have families that are, you know, conservative, uh, for the most part, very clean living, very humble, very hardworking um, people who are very eager to live in town because it reduces their commute compared to living in a township. Uh, so that has worked. It's already happened. David, my point is, insofar as there's this legitimate argument to do EWC in order to save abandoned buildings, because you can't find a lady who immigrated to Australia in 1989 because she was afraid of uh, apartheid ending, that is over. Uh, that's already been settled, oddly enough, by the market, oddly enough, better, more justly, mm. more efficiently than the government could do it. Now what you're left with in this bill is not just that, and, and that's why this bill has this clause, by the way, it doesn't just say you're up for an EWC if the land's been abandoned. It says if it's been abandoned, if you've lost control over it. That could and incentivize people to take control over your land. Exactly. It's a completely different scenario. One thing is if you have, you've lost your cell phone, you, you, you threw it into the bushes, two years later, you don't know where it is. Uh, that's genuinely abandoned. If you are sitting outside of your house or your business and you're looking inside of it and you say, I can't gain access because some people have invaded it and they have harassed me and they've physically intimidated me and I, I've lost control of this thing. The law now says, well, the bill says, if you've lost control, then you can be subject to EWC. Now, that is a horrifying scenario. If you have ever driven through Gauteng, for example, either on the N3 down to Durban or the N1 down to Blum, onwards to Cape Town, you will have seen the mushrooming uh, illegal settlements developing around those highways. Uh, some of it on municipal land, which I guess is just hurting the, the fiscus generally. Uh, but some of it encroaching onto privately owned land. Now that owner at least still has his title deed or her title deed, their, their right to the property. But what this law would do would say, if you've been successfully invaded, then the government is going to finish the job by taking your title deed too. Uh, that sort of takes the idea of possession as nine-tenths of the law, removes the last tenth, and effectively mm -hmm. says the law is now might is right. If you're tough enough, if I can take your control of your laptop, you know, starting with land, if I can take your property, your flat, your house, your business, uh, then I own it. Um, yeah. So what the state should be doing is defending the rights of property owners against these kinds of incursions. But under the scenario that you just painted, the state would actually be coming in and saying, well, you've now lost your legitimate claim on your property because of some external force that has taken it away from you. And we're not going to protect the external force, not you, who's been deprived of your property right. That just seems absurd. Yeah, it is. And, and if I can add to the absurdity, um, we have talked recently about the Western Cape High Court ruling in the Bulalani Kolani case, uh, where I, I, this was went viral in 2020 in the winter of the lockdown. Uh, he was sort of on film naked, being dragged out of uh, a shack um, and detained. And the original case uh, found that there should be a moratorium on evictions during the pandemic or during the lockdown. That's then over. And so they relitigated on the question of counter spoliation, which is a technical term for if someone's taking your stuff, can you take it back? Uh, if someone's invading your property, can you sort of call the police and say, hey, get this person out? Or can you drive them out? Um, uh, because the answer is no, if they have already gained dweller status. If someone is living in your house, you can't just kick them out. Um, if you're and anyone who's rented out will know that if you if you have a long-term lease or rental agreement with someone and then they stop paying and you try to get them evicted, you have to go through a court process. You can't just call the police and say take this person out. You have to go to a magistrate. Um, and, and the process for the PA PIE, uh, the Prevention of Illegal Eviction uh, uh, Act, uh, the, the pie process is almost like a minimum of eight months. And again, you're almost always likely to, to be obliged to get counsel and attorneys involved. So it's a very heavy process. Um, but counter spoliation says, well, before they've started living there, if they sort of come into the property and they, and they start building or moving in, uh, you can get rid of them immediately. And then you don't have to go through that whole, whole process. Uh, that's the common law. Uh, that's the law as it should be and as it was but the high court now ruled 
in the Western Cape. That basically, if the guy's got long enough to take off his pants, uh, then you can't call the police and you can't drive him out yourself. You have to go through the whole court process that could take eight months. Um, and if you think I'm being facetious, the court literally said, uh, if they're building a structure, uh, it doesn't count as a structure if they've only put four pegs in the corners. But once they've gone beyond that, they've got a structure and you can't remove them other than through the court process. In other words, four pegs plus one sheet of metal leaning against a tree, uh, which, which takes about as long, you know, five minutes, an hour, who knows. Uh, that would qualify uh, under the high court's precedent um, as preventing you from being able to get rid of the people immediately through, through calling the police or the anti-land invasion unit. And once they've sat there for eight months, uh, there are now a syndicate of, uh, increasingly there are lawyers that are stepping in to try and take advantage of the situation. You know, if they can drag it out for a year or two, uh, then the government municipal official who's uh, sitting on a bankrupt kind of little microfiscus and would very much like to expropriate the property and uh, sell it off or hawk it off in some ways, uh, coin something out of it, uh, he can then come and say, look, you've lost control of your land. Uh, we're going to take away the title deed too. And, and here's the kicker of it. Under Pi, when you evict someone who's become a dweller, which they can now do after five minutes, you have to provide them alternative accommodation. Now, that's one of the reasons these things drag out so long is because even if you can prove to the court this person should go, if you're not prepared to buy them alternative accommodation, you have to wait for the state to find them alternative accommodation. And that can take years and years. But the state can step in and say, look, if we just expropriate this from you without compensation, we will then have the alternative accommodation, which is exactly where there are in the first place. It'll just be alternative in the sense that it's now legal and legitimate. So, I mean, this is, I'm, I'm laughing because it defies my very best efforts at, um, at, 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 at understanding how, any reasonable person could think this is going to work uh, without awful secondary order effects and how any reasonable person could consider this just and equitable for the victim of land invasion and then having their title be taken by the state too. That just seems crazy. Um, but it's not a laughing matter in the sense that this is what the bill says. And if they get 201 votes, that's what the law will be. Yeah, and there's a further complication, which is that the Trespass Act is being repealed and the Unlawful Entry on Premises Bill has been tabled, which will essentially mean that you can only call the police as a designated authority to remove a trespasser on your property, uh, not, uh, say, a private citizen or a security guard, for example. Um, and we know about the capacity problems with uh, the, the SAPs at the moment as well. You also need to, you now have an obligation to have clear signage uh, saying that this is private property. But, uh, you know, that's um, something that I've dealt with on the CRA channel uh, with advocate Stuart Hayward. Uh, but, you know, let's look at the, the campaigning that you're doing against the bill, Gabriel. Uh, you've sent uh, some letters of clarification asking uh, the financial institutions, for example, to, to clarify what their position on the, this bill is. What's behind that move by you and what are you hoping to achieve there? So the big banks are all members of the Banking Association of South Africa and the Banking Association of South Africa made credible and good representations to Parliament, sorry, on the expropriation bill, both written submissions and oral submissions. And the bank said, uh, you know, you've got to get rid of Section 12.3 of the expropriation bill. You've got to get rid of the null compensation clause. Um, and then they said, look, and if you're not going to do that, you've got to be more specific, close the list, um, narrow it down. Uh, I thought in their written submissions, they could have um, uh, been a little bit less uh, circumspect in that second move. Um, I think it's good to point out how all those factors, the fact that it's an open list, is, is, is dangerous. The fact that speculation effectively becomes something that's unprotected and uh, the fact that uh, losing control, you know, 
essentially this would legitimize taking something from someone else. Uh, those it's very important to criticize those facts specifically, uh, but then also to say within that the, the whole idea of non-compensation doesn't work. Um, anyway, call that a, a niggly gripe. That's not the big deal. The big deal is this: the banks, generally speaking, made very good representations, saying you can't do this EWC thing. It's going to blow up the financial market. It's going to be very bad for our customers. It's going to ruin the whole country's prospects of 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 genuine economic development. They have, however, been silent on this issue subsequently, and in particular since Ramaphosa reignited the whole debate a couple of weeks ago at the ANC policy conference. So those representations were made, if I'm not mistaken, in early 2021. The written submissions, you know, this bill was tabled in 2020. And so the written submissions and the oral submissions, that was all dealt with like over a year ago. And it just is the case that things have changed uh we're coming out of the pandemic we're building into 2024 ANC's dropped below 50 percent at national municipal level ramaphosa is more in battle than ever before with the palapala incident and the ANC's had its policy conference in the build-up for the next five years the party that's in government has now restated its position and in particular it's it's dissolved this ambiguity it said we're no longer going for a constitutional change we're just going for ewc through the expropriation bill and to my mind, in, in this new day, it behooves those financial, financial institutions to also update their positions, uh, to say, look, you know, we opposed this when it was this and the constitutional amendment, we opposed this uh, uh, a year ago. But today, in case you think anything's changed, we are also on the same page. The ANC hasn't changed. We also want to make it explicit that we haven't changed our views either. That's why I, we wrote to them. My, my colleague Mlondi uh, wrote to them. Um, and he got some responses, um, but all of those responses were promises for further responses. Um, and it's been weeks. Uh, we gave them two weeks to consider and respond. Uh, and, and that period has long elapsed. Um, so we're renewing our efforts today. Uh, just to say, basically, we want... South Africans to come together and oppose this explicitly. Um, we think that it is that a, that an ounce of prevention is is better than ten tons of retrospective cure. Most South Africans are firmly against expropriation without compensation. Most South Africans we know this because we polled them, um, and uh, of course you know when you break down EFF supporters, we've asked, would you like expropriation without compensation for other people, and they. Many of them say yes. And we say, would you like it for yourself? And they all say no. Um, so that's a technical subsection. But if you ask people in general, uh, would you prefer economic growth and, and more jobs or EWC as a past way to address past wrongs? 15% of white respondents say, never mind the jobs and the growth, we'll go for EWC. Um, I think it's a very interesting result. 15% uh, of black respondents say the same thing. So it's 15% of each. This is not a, actually a, a, a black versus white thing. There are an equally small minority of, 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 of those two races who really don't care about jobs and growth and are fixated on a kind of cosmic justice idea of, of, of punishing people and, and allowing the state this, this awesome and awful power. But 80% of black respondents, 85% of colored respondents, 90% of Indian respondents, and 80% of white respondents, in other words, a supermajority of everyone, uh, the, the silent majority, says, no, we want jobs and growth. The biggest issue in the country is unemployment. Uh, we're very happy to work together across racial lines. 80% say that jobs should be appointed on merit. All of this kind of stuff is very important. And it's important that the silent majority finds a voice finds a form of expression and representation that actually can apply the kind of pressure that could change the course of history, that could change the course of events. If the banks say together and separately and clearly that they want to serve the best interests of their customers and the best interests of the country by just telling the government, no EWC, don't do it. It's going to be a disaster. That could make the difference between 204 votes and 195 votes. 
I'm not saying it's going to change the whole ANC, but it could change things on the margin. And that is what I'm campaigning for. I'm campaigning to change things on the margin to stop this bill from becoming a law. Because while I know it's unconstitutional, once it's become a law, that will immediately have deleterious market effects. Once it's implemented here and there, I know you've also done stuff on municipal bankruptcy. There are so many expropriating authorities that are going to be very eager to try and take advantage of it, even if Pretoria would prefer them not to. All of those instances are going to put individual businesses on the line. They're going to be driven out. They're going to be spending all of their money on court action. Some more skills are going to flee the country. Some more foreign direct investment will be held off and actually flee. Local direct investment will go away. That means more jobs being lost. That means a longer unemployment line. That means the dry tinder or the, or the dry powder keg of South Africa that's ready to explode at any given moment is made drier still. That means more insurrection potentials. That means the worst possible way to build up into the 2024 election. Um, it's really important to, to not fall for the idea that we can uh, wait until after this bill has become a law to sort of tackle it in court and think that, th that, that that's going to make everything okay. Uh, it's not, it's not good enough. And one last thing, the land courts bill, if that gets passed, you know, in the office, we call that the EWC bill uh, or the EWC court bill, because effectively what that would do is, is, is put, put the courts uh, against owners uh, and in favor of uh, the state uh, doing ex expropriation without compensation. Uh, so even that, that level of court protection uh, would be further eroded. As Anthea Jeffrey has argued, uh, the normal processes of, uh, you, you know, uh, giving evidence and uh, and those things would be uh, kind of subverted in the land court. But it, it it wouldn't be like a normal court. It would have its own rules and, and procedures. Yeah, hearsay evidence briefly would basically count as potentially dispositive. Uh, so you wouldn't need some material corroborated or expert witness mm. to come and say that my that this family came from this land. Uh, you, could, and, yeah. you could have someone just saying, you know, I heard from a guy who said from a guy that uh, that our ancestors were were over here. And those kinds of claims have be, have occurred repeatedly and been tested in a court. And some of them are true and some of them are found uh, completely ridiculous. And I, you know, in my time in rural KZN, I've spoken to poor black people who were directly victimized by the apartheid uh, mad land regime. Uh, who then got a, a, a almost a double dose uh, because outsiders then try to come in and claim the land that they were trying to claim um, for expropriation with compensation for restitution because of direct deprivation. Um, and were it not for civil society organizations stepping in and helping them out with legal action, uh, even the laws that are already on the books would not have been enough to protect them from procedural irregularities resulting in non-deserving parties coming and, and claiming their land. Um, but with the land courts bill, no amount of money or legal expertise would, would save you from a kind of mob uh, claim that like, well, I heard from a guy who heard from a guy that this is for us. And if you say anything else, uh, you must be mentally colonized, as Lindiwe Sisulu revoltingly said about some of our court justices. Uh, that, that kind of mobbish uh, agro um, and anti-evidence uh, attitude would basically be led into the door. Yeah, and then just to the earlier conversation points around business, they might say, well, look, we don't want to get too involved in the politics of this. We're going to let the process go through and we'll see what happens. Uh, but as you say, trying to reverse a deleterious law like that when it actual, actually will have market implications uh, is going to be very difficult. And there is a precedent for business. You know, if you think of the, the sacking of Nflantla Nene, uh, you know, they galvanized, came together and said, like, we're just not going to accept this. Um, and they put a lot of pressure on the Zuma administration to reverse some of those those actions. Um, you know, Absolutely. so it's not like they are helpless here. You're totally right. Um, and I think it, it looking at the banks in particular um, and the other financial service uh, institutions, insurance companies will be getting to. Um, one of the things to bear in mind is that South Africa's economy was basically built on uh, precious, you know, stuff pulled out of the ground, diamonds and gold, but especially gold. Um, but for many decades now, the, the mining sector has been overtaken by the financial services sector in South Africa as, as the real largest driving force uh, in, in 
really bad years. Agriculture is the sort of fastest growing sector. Uh, but but when we were actually growing at 5%, when we were adding three jobs in, in six or seven years, three million jobs in six or seven years, you know, when South Africa was doing well in the, in the mid-2000s, it was very much driven by the financial services sector. And if there's any reasonable way of talking about us as a gateway to Africa, it's because of that. So we have a very strong financial services sector in the context of Africa uh, and in the context of the rest of our local economy, which is not doing so well. That all being said, our financial services sector has never been weaker. Uh, when the uh, Moody's and S&P and so on, um, Standard & Poor's, uh, downgraded um, South Africa's sovereign bonds to junk status and then doubled junk status and then sort of a negative outlook on that too, there, there was a question about what they were going to do with our private financial institutions uh, credit rating, credit worthiness appraisals. And part of that had to do with the fact that bizarrely, South Africa is one of the very few historical cases during the end of apartheid when business also stood up and said, you've got to end apartheid, this is really, really bad. Um, another nice president to remember. At that period, ESCOM's bonds were considered much more credit worthy than South Africa's bonds. Um, usually the sovereign's bond is the most credit worthy, but sometimes private institutions can, uh, semi other institutions can be considered better off uh, because they're guaranteed some kind of income. So the question was, is that going to be the case with South Africa's banks? And the answer is no. Our banks are triple junk rated effectively. They are rated at a, a more junky status uh, than the South African Reserve Bank. Uh, that has already had quite serious effects on their prospects for growth. And so, you know, you, it, you see a bit of a, a flat line there. Um, you, you also find that they are in, in a bit of trouble insofar as they've been able to absorb um, uh, the, the, the costs, really, of, of being in a no-growth environment for the last 12, 13 years. Real GDP per capita is lower now than it was in 2009, 2010, and, and still actually make gains by taking advantage of technological innovations that make uh, getting to the low end of the tail more interesting and by sort of adventuring uh, into foreign markets. But there's just no financial system that can survive indefinite no-growth no, no economic conditions because the whole way that finance works is that is 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 that it sits in a position where it facilitates the efficient allocation of assets in a way that brings dividends sufficient not only to reward the initial investor, but also for them as intermediaries to get a bit of a slice of the top. So it's like, if you imagine the, the pie keeps growing, the bankers can keep getting a bit of a slice and a bit of a slice and a bit of a slice without getting into a negative spiral. But if the pie is the same size, if you're in a stagnant economy where the financial sector is the largest, eventually it's going to cannibalize itself. Um, so in, the, in, 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 a, in a sort of quite abstract macro sense, they're in deep trouble because of the low growth conditions. And in a, and in a very particular uh, credit worthiness sense, they're in low growth. Now, the banks are aware of that. Barca's represent, representations to parliament were to the effect that the expropriation bill could easily trigger a financial crisis as happened in America in South Africa it's not going to affect the rest of the world as much because we're not that large of an economy, but it would be much more devastating to us even than it was to the Americans. Um, and that's going off a very low base. It's important to defend the bonds uh, and the mortgages. You know, one of the questions we've asked before and that we'll be asking again is if a house does or a business does undergo EWC and there's like 5 million outstanding rands worth of debt that's been collateralized on that property, the person who's been expropriated is not going to pay it back anymore. They don't have the property anymore. Why would they pay it back? They can't pay it back, probably. So what's going to happen to the bank? Uh, it, it, it is expecting on its books to get 5 million rand back over the years. Uh, is the government going to pay it? Uh, the expropriation bill doesn't make any provision for it to do so. Uh, so the, <laughs> the banks are going to be directly expropriated too. Uh, and... Uh, that's bad for their customers and, and, and bad for the country. So yeah, they've, they've, they've got to stand up 
um, and 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 use prevention rather than cure. And likewise for the for the food in you know for the I don't want to say the agriculture industry, but for the food industry, we we reached out to Woolworths and Pick and Pay and Spa and all those guys to ask them uh, what they make of this. Um, I'm very disappointed to see Woolworths reply and say, you know, we don't actually know if this is going to affect food security. Uh, that seems pretty wild. I mean, at least the banks have very clearly said this is going to not just affect the financial services sector, but this is going to affect food security. Um, you'd think that a food retailer might have figured out that if the agriculture sector is uh, given a knock and the financial services sector is given a knock, uh, there's already 1.7 million children that are malnourished in this country or expected to be in the next two years. Uh, it's sitting at 1.5, 1.7. We are already food insecure uh, because we don't have enough money. Um, and EWC is just going to cost us more. All right. Well, Gabriel, this is clearly a risk. It's still coming down the pipeline. Uh, there's a few steps to go, but I think the urgency is now building. For people who are concerned with this EWC bill, how can they contribute their voice uh, to making sure that uh, this doesn't materialize in the way that's currently drafted? I think if people understand that Venezuela and Zimbabwe were once in the same position that we're in, and they understand that at the time that the expropriation without compensation changes to the law in Venezuela were being made. There were some people who said, no, don't worry about it. And some people who said, no, I'm too busy doing something else. I don't have time to help. Um, people can understand that most of the citizens in those countries today regret, rue the day, that uh, their property rights were eroded and, and wish that they could go back and do something about it. Um, I think they wouldn't need me to explain what to do. Um, and I had that experience once um, in rural South Africa with a, with a Zimbabwean just basically weeping and saying, I wish I could turn back the clock um, and, and actually go out and do something about it um, when, when, when we had the chance instead of waiting until afterwards to try and address it that way. But okay, practically what can you do? Uh, one thing I encourage people to do is to sign up to the uh, campaign, to the petition by the Institute of Race Relations um, uh, against the expropriation bill. We've made our representations to parliament, um, but we would like to make representations, for example, to the president to say that he shouldn't sign this because it's unconstitutional. Uh, that's another step further down the line. And the more people we have to say, look, uh, these are the signatures of people that agree with us. Um, the easier it is for us to get in the door and, and, and make the argument directly to those political agents that have the power to stop it, and also to uh, get in the minds of the members of parliament who might be, who must be in two minds about this. I know many have made up their minds, but there are some that are in two minds, and we would like to apply that pressure there. We would like you to apply that pressure there because you are the citizen, and public servants are obliged to heed your concerns and your interests, and we aim to act as a channel for that message. Um, but outside of the IRR, there are many other civil society organizations that are trying to stand up for this. Um, so look at those. I don't want to, um, yeah, very important. Here's what's very important too. You are a customer. You're not just a citizen. You are a customer with your bank. You are a customer with your, with your local retailer. And those business organizations that sit down at NEDLAC, that uh, have tea, with the rulers of the day that have uh, major tax contributions and major partnership, you know, public-private partnership, who hasn't heard that enough? Uh, those partners of government are in a very important position. They need to apply pressure. They need to be explicit in the warnings. They need to say what everyone already knows, that this is going to be disastrous for business and that what's bad for business is bad for the country. But they're not going to do that unless you encourage them to do so, because it's in their interest to tread carefully, uh, not, to, not to be too adventurous. Uh, th that's just how businesses around the world are. Businesses that are courageous, that do the right thing, the businesses 
that uh, have made complaints in the recent years about bad ministerial appointments, ministers, the businesses that oppose apartheid, they did so because customers urged them to do so. So I, I urge you to, to, to write a letter to your bank, to, to speak to, uh, send a letter to, to Willies or Checkers or whatever you like, um, and just say, you know, aren't you worried about this? And if you're worried about this, what are you doing about it? Well, Gabriel Kraus, I think that's a good place to end this conversation. I've really enjoyed chatting to you. And I think the IR has an outsized voice, but it's not as strong a voice as the multitude of millions of citizens uh, expressing their discontent. So uh, I think that this is a really good uh, call to people who might be concerned about this bill to add their voice to the debate. And we'll certainly link to that IR petition in the show notes as well. But uh, Gabriel, I wanted to thank you very much for joining me on the Solutions Podcast. Thanks, David. It's a, it's a pleasure, man. If you enjoyed this conversation and you're watching on YouTube, please do give this video a like and also subscribe to the channel. If you haven't done so already, leave your thoughts as well down in the comments section. If you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well and leave a review. My name is David Ansara. This is the Solutions Podcast. Until next time, take care.